Um, so we are, we are this week wrapping up a series that we've been in for the last number of weeks that we've called The Wanderer. And in this series, we've been looking at the life of Abraham. Abraham is this figure we encounter in the book of Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And Abraham's kind of this larger-than-life, heroic figures, figure who oftentimes isn't actually very heroic. And so we encounter Abraham doing these incredible acts of faith and trust, and then we see Abraham falling flat on his face. And it's been fascinating because as we read the scriptures, as we look at the life of Abraham, we come to see that we're not actually reading this to find out about Abraham. We're reading this to find out about us, about what it really looks like for us to be people on this journey, learning to understand and trust God, to to relate to one another. These stories are really about the human condition. And so we're going to, we're wrapping up this week, and there's so much we haven't gotten to. I, I, I encourage you, if you haven't been, to, to look in your Bible, to kind of read some of these stories. They're amazing stories, and there's been so much we've had to skip over just because for, for the sake of time. But as we come to this week, we're going to end with kind of the, the, the main character of the story all along that we've never met until today. And his name is Isaac. Isaac is the, the son born to Sarah, which we'll read in just a minute. But if you've been with us or if you're familiar with the story at all, the whole, the, the narrative thread of this Abraham story was that God shows up and he calls Abraham to move out into a place he doesn't know, uh, to go in a, to, to do something he's never done before. And the promise is, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless all the nations through you and that you're going to have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. But the tension that was introduced really early on in this story is that Sarah, his wife, is barren. She can't give birth. And so you have this promise from God that I'm going to bless the whole world through you and through your offspring, and yet he doesn't have any offspring. And so as you could imagine, that seems to be a little problematic for them. They're, they're waiting on this thing to happen, and it, and it doesn't. And so we get to this point in the story, and, and just to kind of bring, to fill in some of the gaps as we get ready to talk about what we're going to talk about this morning, we get to a point where Sarah kind of, rea- she, she realizes she's getting up there in age. She's in, at this point, she's probably in her 80s. And she says, okay, I'm, uh, I'm not going to be able to have a baby. And so I'm going to give Abraham my servant Hagar to, to have sex with so that she can maybe have a baby, and then that'll work out okay. Which, for us in our modern sensibilities, that sounds ew, right? Like, uh, she's going to give her servant to her husband to sleep with so they can have a baby. You know, but for, for these ancient people, she was legally an extension of Sarah. And so to have a child with Hagar was essentially to have a child through Sarah because this servant was her property. And so it kind of made sense in their head. Like, okay, so God promised that we're going to have a baby and Sarah's not having the baby, so maybe the way God's going to do this is through Hagar. So Abraham sleeps with Hagar. They have a baby. And this kind of works out great for a little while, but it does create some additional tension. Um, but we're going to jump in to, uh, to Genesis chapter 21. 
And we're going to read about kind of how the birth of Isaac, the fulfillment of God's promise begins to kind of affect all of these relationships. So again, we're going to start in Genesis 21. We're going to have the scripture up on the screen. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If you don't, again, the scripture will be up here for you to read for now, but we do encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, to to grab one before you leave. We have some sitting on the countertop in the foyer. We'd love to give it to you as our gift to you. So we're going to pick up in chapter 21, verse 1. We read, The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant, and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born. All right, we're going to pause there for a second. There's a lot in there. But just to, to kind of point out, maybe the obvious, that something that's impossible happened. Sarah was 90 years old, which in modern medical, like from our modern perspective, we would say that there's just no way that could ever happen. They thought the same thing. That was their assumption. She's 90. She's not able to have kids. And then here we are. She has a baby. It's a miracle. And the point of the story, we read it the first verse, chapter 21, verse 1, the Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. What the author wants us to see here in the midst of this miraculous thing is that despite the fact that it took a really, 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 really long time, the thing that God said God was going to do, God did. That God can be trusted. That's it. But that's kind of a big deal. That even when everything else in life seems to kind of point the other way, God can be trusted. Even when we don't understand how this is all going to flesh out, and even when there's difficulty and pain, God can be trusted. Now, I don't want to drill down too deep on this. Uh, Carmen Carpenter uh, spoke on this a couple of weeks ago. And so if you want to explore some more about that, I encourage you to go back and listen to her podcast. She did a great job. But I do think it's important for us to be reminded that God is trustworthy, that that's the point of this story, that what the author wants to communicate more than anything else is that despite everything you've seen, despite the fact that there are really legitimate, difficult things that these people have gone through that don't really make sense, somehow God can still be trusted. God is out for our good. And this is important because trusting that the creator of all things is out for our good, even when we can't see it, creates a very different dynamic in how we engage the world. If at the end of the day, we trust that the creator of all things is for us, even when we don't understand how things are all going to shake out, how we engage whatever we face, whether it's really good or really bad, is, complete, is a completely different posture. If our core belief is that God is not out for our good, that God can't be trusted, that we don't know where all this is going to go, 
it can create problems for us pretty quickly. This gets illustrated really well in, <clears throat> excuse me, when we come to verse 8 in this same chapter and we see how Sarah begins to act. Verse 8. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham, and her Egyptian servant Hagar, making fun of her son Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, Get rid of that slave woman and her son. He's not going to share the inheritance with my son Isaac. I won't have it. This upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. But God told Abraham, Do not be upset over the boy and your servant. Do whatever Sarah tells you, for Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. But I will also make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son, because he is your son too. So Abraham got up early the next morning, prepared food and a container of water, and strapped them on Hagar's shoulders. Then he sent her away with their son, and she wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Beersheba. So this is a pretty tragic twist in the story. God does a miracle for Sarah. At the time when it seems like she could not have children, she conceives, has a child. From our vantage point, it would seem like she has every reason to relax, to be excited about what God is going to do with this kid. But that's not how this goes. See, for Sarah, she forgot that the whole point of the story, if we go back, back to Genesis chapter 12, is that God said, I'm going to bless you, and through you, all the nations are going to be blessed. Sarah stopped at the blessing part. She heard, I'm going to bless you. And all of her life up until this point was, when's it coming? When's it coming? When's it coming? And finally, she got it. She got Isaac. She got the thing she was waiting for. But when she did, suddenly life became about Isaac. It wasn't, here's the beginning of God's promise to bless the world that you get to be a part of. It was, here's your, here's your baby. Now you, you enjoy. Life all becomes about the gift, not the opportunity that the gift presents to be a part of what God is doing. And it, even though everything around her pointed to the fact that she did not have to circle the wagons and, and be super kind of protective and cautious with Isaac, that, that if God was faithful to give her a baby at 90, then why should she worry about whether or not Ishmael was making fun of him? Even though everything objectively kind of points to lighten up, you and I both know that most often how we act isn't based on what's objectively kind of true. It's based on the story we're telling ourselves. It's based on what we think to be true about the world. Great example. At least I think it's a great example. Um, so if, if you've been here a couple of weeks, you've heard me talk a lot about a trip that my son and I took with a family here, the Davis family, to Jamaica. So we're, I know I've talked about that a lot. It was a great trip. Lots of great things happened. This is a different kind of story. We were in Jamaica, and one of the things that they did because, you know, we had like a day off, and they said, hey, uh, we're going to give you guys an opportunity to go snorkeling. Now, a long time ago, when Tracy and I were in college, we went snorkeling 
uh, off uh, in Trinidad, which is right off uh, the coast of Venezuela. And our experience snorkeling was kind of the idyllic picture that you would have about snorkeling, where the, the water was like glass still, right? It was it, you could you know like bounce a coin off it. It was so calm, and and it was you know there were some places that were fairly deep, but most of it was fairly shallow. So you, you know, there were times you could stand and rest, and we'd take pictures, and it was very you know it was great. And so I remembered this experience of snorkeling. And so we're in Jamaica, and they're saying, hey, we're going to go snorkeling. And I was like, oh, great. Now, I'm not a particularly strong swimmer. But I, I thought, I was snorkeling before. This will go well. And I remember, I remember talking to someone. Uh, I was talking to someone about it, and one of the interns was sitting there, and I made the comment about, well, if, if you get tired, you just stand. And they said, no, no, there's no standing here. Like, we're snorkeling in the ocean. There's not just, like, a place to stand. And I was like, oh. Okay, cool, okay. Um, but I thought, you know, I'm sure that's true, but it'll be fine. And then I, I, I learned how long we would be out. We would only be out for about 30 minutes. And again, I'm not a particularly strong swimmer, but in my mind, I thought, I could figure it out for 30 minutes, right? Like, that's not bad. You could do that. And then, and then I heard that we'd be wearing flippers, which I've never worn flippers, but I assumed they helped you swim better, right? Why else would you do it? And so I thought, well, this will be fine. It's easy. Flippers, 30 minutes, I got this. And then we get on the boat, and, and he's taking us out, and it's kind of a stormy day, and so the water's rough. And he said, well, we're not able to go to the place I wanted to take you, so we're going to kind of go to this spot. I'm going to drop you off. I'm going to go ahead of you, and you'll just kind of swim towards me. And so all of these kind of objective facts are kind of screaming at me, you should probably stay in the boat, right? But in my head, I'm like, I've done this. I'm good. I can, I can, I'm a snorkeler. I can handle this. And so <clears throat> we get out there, and, you know, we're sticking the flippers on and, and the, the mask and the, the thing, all that, the snorkels. Yeah. Uh, so whatever it is, we're putting all this stuff on, and they're telling us about how you need to just flip off the boat. That's the best way to do it. And I'm like, that's great. You know, there were some people who were nervous about the flipping backwards. I'm like, I got this, right? So we pull up there, get everything on. He's like, all right, let's go off the boat. I might have been the first one off. I'm just like, woo, flipped off, right? And I get in there, and he looks, and the first thing he says, the captain, he's like, just like him, just like him, everyone, just like him, do that. And then there's a pause. About five or ten seconds go by, and he goes, no, 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 no. He needs a life jacket. Get that man a life jacket, right? Because what happened is I, I flipped into the water, and everything was cool, and I get in there, and suddenly I'm like, I have something on my feet, what do I do with these things? I didn't know. And so, like, I'm str- yeah, so it was really bad. So I had to swim back to the boat and put on a life jacket. And so there I am, floating in the Caribbean, wearing a life jacket. I'm that guy. Um, <clears throat> because I didn't stop when it, no matter what fact hit me about this being a bad decision, no matter what piece of information someone gave me that you should... Just stay in the boat, dude, right? None of it meant anything. Because in my head, I was like, I got this. I, I got, I'm a snorkeler. I've been there. We can do this. It doesn't really matter for most of us what the facts are. What matters is the story that we tell ourselves. And for Sarah, it didn't matter that she, had, that she was given a baby miraculously. Somehow in her head, her story was one of, of lack of, of having to fight for what's hers. And you can understand it. If you read the story, it's been years of her not 
getting what she wanted. It's been her being pimped out by her husband when they get into a dangerous situation to protect his own skin. It's been suffering and hardship. And so when she gets this gift, you can understand why she would say, I got to cling to this thing for all that I'm worth. But because that was the story that she told herself, it caused her not to see this baby as her opportunity to join God's work of blessing the world, but instead to use this gift as an excuse to curse others. To use this gift she had been given, because the gift was the point, right? The point wasn't blessing the world. The point was the gift. And so other people became kind of what she had to defend the gift against rather than opportunities for her to join God in blessing others. And we see this dynamic work out in our lives all the time with gifts that we've been given, with things that have been entrusted to us. Rather than seeing it as a gift that we get to use for the blessing of others, we see it as the thing that we have to hold on to to take care of ourselves, that we need to hold tightly to or else someone might take it from us. We see it everywhere. Uh, We'll pick on money to start with because money is an easy one. Uh, Mostly because most of us are able to go, well, I definitely don't have enough money that he's talking about me, so I'll just assume he's talking about everyone else. But for all of us, right, money, we we see money as as a gift. We need money, right? You got to put clothes on yourself, on your kids. You got to put food on the table, pay the bills, keep the lights on, roof over your head. Makes sense. Gas in the car. Money is a gift. We're glad for it. And sometimes it allows us to enjoy really nice things, vacations and snorkeling, and um, I wouldn't have paid for that one, but uh, ice cream, whatever it is, right? These aren't necessarily necessities, but they're things that we get to enjoy because we have the gift of money, and that's great. And money can be an incredible tool to bless others. I've seen this time and time again with people who have been given the gift of make money beyond what they need, how they've used this to bless other people. There, there's a family that I know who they have significant resources, and one of the things that they have is they have a place in Florida. And they came to me one time and they said, look, if there's ever anyone who really is in a tough spot and, and you think this could be a, a blessing for them. Let us know, and we'd love to set up an opportunity for them to spend some time at our place. Well, it turned out there was someone who, who had a relative in Florida who got sick, and she was really concerned that this person was going to go downhill fast, but she couldn't afford to go, go see them. And so I went to this family and said, hey, just so you know, this is going on. I, I don't know if, if that's possible, but I, I just want to let you know. And they're like, Absolutely. So they paid to fly her down and spend a week at their place so she could visit their family member. Because for them, they saw their resources as a gift, not just to be enjoyed, though, yes, they enjoyed it, but to be utilized to bless others. And the result was incredible. I mean, this woman was blessed beyond belief. Not only did she get to see her family member, she got to get a little vacation time and enjoy some time with a friend in Florida that she never could have afforded on her own because these people saw their money as a gift that they were to use 
to bless others. But you probably also know people who money is not just a, a gift to kind of be utilized for the blessing of others, but it's the end game. It's, it's the, the end to itself, to accumulate more and more. And when that's the attitude, it doesn't often go well. There's a guy named Sam Polk who grew up in a working class family where his dad was uh, a cabinet maker. And he was pretty good at making cabinets, but he wasn't very good at the marketing business end. And so he really struggled, really struggled to make it. They mostly survived on his mom's salary. She was a nurse practitioner. And they kind of together, they, they figured it out. But his dad's narrative was always, life will be good when we make it, when I get money. Like, he would often say to his son, can you imagine when I make a million dollars what life will be like? And so all growing up, he heard that really what we need for life to work out is to get money. And so when he graduated from Columbia University and he got a job with Bank of America and he eventually made his way working as a hedge fund manager with Credit First Swiss Boston. And pretty quickly made his way kind of figured out how life worked in that environment and started making over a million dollars a year, almost two million dollars a year. And when he, started, when he started making that kind of money, he started to feel like, wow, okay, I finally, I made it. But then he realized that even though he was making nearly two million dollars a year, the guy beside him was making 10. And so even though two million was more than he could have ever imagined, it wasn't enough anymore. And so he had to keep working to make more. And it, it all became about the money, not what kind of life was he living, not what opportunities did it afford him to make a difference for others, but how did he make himself feel like he had made it based on his checking account balance. That was the driving force in his life. Eventually, he, uh, he left his work on Wall Street because he came to a little bit of an existential crisis. He began looking around him and realizing that he was driven by money, but not even as much as the people around him were driven by money. And he saw the impact that was having, not just on them, but on the world as they went through the financial crisis in 2008. And he and others got wealthy off of it as many people suffered. And so he faced this crisis one day as he was reading through uh, some books on the civil rights movement and thinking about what it would have been like to be one of the freedom riders. And he imagined himself as someone who most certainly would have been on one of those, uh, on the bus with the Freedom Riders. But as he thought about it, he had to stop himself and realize, you know what? I'm not so sure I would have been. He writes this. He says, but I was lying to myself. This is in an op-ed in the New York Times that he later wrote once he left Wall Street. He said, but I was lying to myself. There were plenty of injustices out there. Rampant poverty, swelling prison populations, a sexual assault epidemic, an obesity crisis. Not only was I not helping to fix any problems in the world, but I was profiting from them. During the market crash in 2008, I'd made a ton of money by shorting the derivatives of risky companies. As the world crumbled, I profited. I'd seen the crash coming, but instead of trying to help the people it, it would hurt the most, people who didn't have a million dollars in the bank, I'd make money off it. I don't like who you've become, my girlfriend had said years earlier. She was right then, and she was still right. Only now, I didn't like who I'd become either. So Polk wrote this after having left Wall Street and starting a non-profit called Grocery Ships. <coughs> Excuse me. Grocery Ships 
is an organization whose mission is to improve long-term health and wellness in low-income communities by creating a network of educational support groups and enhancing access to healthy, unprocessed food. So he moves from Wall Street, where he's making millions, to starting a nonprofit that's trying to help people think about how to acquire healthy food so they can live well. And the interesting thing in the shift is that Polk doesn't say, ah, money's the problem. He said, the story I was telling was the problem. What I thought, what I thought was the gift, money, was actually a tool that I had to be used for what really mattered, making a difference in the lives of others. And so now he's still in the business of money, but it's in raising money to help channel it in a way that benefits the most amount of people. It's not about the gift, it's about what you do with it. It's about how you choose to utilize it. Do you, do you receive the gift as simply a gift for you to be enjoyed, or as an opportunity to bless many others? And this is what Sarah missed, and this is what we miss, this is what I miss so often. That Isaac's birth was a miraculous gift, but she took it to be the thing that she was to live for. And often, we do the same with our gifts. We make them the central thing rather than a tool to be used. Because, again, money's easy to pick on, but we can do this with anything. Whatever gift you have, because each of you is uniquely gifted. You've been given something. Maybe you haven't been given lots of money, though most of us in this room have enough that we could think about how might we use that for the blessing of others. But let's not even talk about money. Some of you are really good at fixing things, right? You're, you're amazing with your hands. You know how to figure out how something works and to fix it. That's your gift. How do you use that? Is it something that really helps you in terms of saving a little money and doing some cool hobbies? That's great. Do you ever think about what opportunities might exist for you to utilize that gift for those who could really benefit from it? Or maybe you are a a gifted leader, someone who just kind of knows when you get into a room full of people what needs to happen and how to rally people to that cause. And that's served you really well in your, in your workplace, in your career. And that's great. But where are you leading people? And what opportunities exist for you to use that gift in a way that might benefit other people? Same's true for some of us who are gifted artists. Right? You, you've been given an amazing gift to communicate beauty, whether it's through, through paint or writing or photography, music, whatever it might be. And that's wonderful. Are you utilizing that in a way that mostly benefits you and the people closest to you? Or are there ways for you to see that as a gift you can offer others? And and we could just go down the list again and again. What are the gifts you've been given? And how might you Live for a different story that says those gifts are not simply given for your own personal blessing, but so that you could join God in blessing 
as many people as possible. This is not where Sarah went. And it's not where Abraham went. Sure, Abraham kind of gets talked into it by Sarah, but, I mean, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Abraham's willingness to argue with God. He didn't put up much of a fight with Sarah, so uh, we're not going to let Abraham off the hook with this. But it kind of puts the next chapter in context, and we're not gonna, we don't have time to read much of it, but the next chapter is one that, again, even if you're not familiar with the stories, you probably have some kind of, you've heard about this before. The next chapter, God asks Abraham to do something that makes no sense whatsoever outside of this previous chapter, this understanding of how Sarah is viewing Isaac, how Abraham is viewing Isaac. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. God says to Abraham, says, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. So this whole story has been about Isaac getting born. Finally, Isaac is born, and the very next thing we hear from God is, okay, now go kill him. Go sacrifice him. And what's even crazier than that is that Abraham doesn't argue. He takes Isaac, they walk up the mountain, he straps him down on an altar, and according to the story, gets the knife out, pulls it up, is about ready to kill him, and an angel has to intervene. And God says this in verse 12, Now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. So this whole thing was a test. We actually see that in verse 1 of chapter 22. And that sounds really kind of cruel that God would do that, like just to test him, see if he'll do it. Except for the fact that we've already seen what happens when you hold too tightly to the gift. We've seen what kind of person that created, that, who that made Sarah to be when life was about Isaac. She was willing to hurt others, willing to send others off, willing to sacrifice others to protect the gift. And so it seems cruel, but maybe part of it is God needed Abraham to understand that a life lived just for the gift wouldn't be much of a life at all that a life lived solely to kind of hold tightly to the things that you have is not really a life worth living. That you were created to live a life of generosity and blessing, of recognizing that you get to be part of God's work in blessing the world by looking deep down inside and say, what has been given to me and how might I utilize that for the blessing of other people? Author Annie Dillard says it this way. She says, The impulse to keep to yourself what you have learned is not only shameful, it is destructive. Anything you do not give freely and abundantly becomes lost to you. You open your safe and find ashes. Anything you do not give freely and abundantly becomes lost to you. You open your safe and find ashes. 
the gift was made for you to use for the blessing of others. This is how it flourishes. It's how you flourish. Jesus is getting at this, I believe, when he says this in in Luke's gospel, Luke's biography of Jesus, chapter 14. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And again, that verse can sound pretty harsh. You have to comparatively hate everyone in order to to follow Jesus. But I think he's getting at the same thing. Is that we need to recognize that we are called to live a life that's bigger than it, it's bigger than the relationships we care the most about. It's bigger than the the things that we enjoy most in life. The things that that the gifts we've been given. That those things are all what they are gifts. But they are not given for us simply to consume and to enjoy and to keep to ourselves. But they are given to help us join God in God's mission to bless the world. And that in Jesus, we see the climax of God's work to bless the world. That God comes to bring life and light and hope in Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. And that for those of us who are followers of Jesus... Our call is to join him in bringing that light and hope and beauty into the world. To see ourselves as part of God's mission to bless the world. And we've been given gifts. You've been given gifts. Things that you're good at. Things that you do better than most other people do. And those have been given to you so that you can be a channel of blessing. And you, like Abraham, like Sarah you will find life, full life, meaningful life, only when you begin to see those gifts as tools that you have to offer blessing rather than things to simply be held on to, protected. This is the invitation for us. This is what we see is the invitation for Abraham from the beginning, and we get invited into that same story. How are we people who are learning to live in relationship with God, receiving the blessings that God gives, and utilizing those to offer blessing to others? So our takeaway this morning, the thing I'd love for you to think about throughout the week, is simply, what are the gifts you have? What have you been given? They might be really obvious gifts. Again, we talked about some of the easy ones, right? Like, you know, maybe you been blessed with lots of resources or you have some particular skills that you know things you're really great at but they could be less obvious things maybe you just you have the gift of free time you have you have free time you have time to to share time that you could spend investing in other people maybe you're just a really good listener and you could offer that as a gift to others Whatever it is, you have something that you have been given. I would invite you to consider prayerfully how you might begin to step out and look for opportunities to use that to make a difference in the lives of people around you. That's where, that's where we find meaningful, fulfilling life as we join God in his mission to bless others.
I'm going to wrap up with a scripture, and then we're going to take a couple of minutes to interact. Um, I'm going to read this from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes, There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. What are the gifts you've been given? And what opportunities exist for you to use that gift to bless others this week? Father, thank you that you have given us gifts. And thank you even more that we're given those gifts so that we can be part of the bigger story of your work to bless the world. That in Jesus and now, as those of us who are looking to follow in Jesus' way, you are offering life and hope and meaning to the world. Blessing. And you're inviting us to use our gifts to join you in that mission. So help us this week to be able to kind of identify where are the places that we've been given gifts? Where are the, the places that we have opportunities to utilize our resources to be a blessing to others? And give us courage to do that, to step out and to try new things, uh, to take risks for the sake of being a blessing to others. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.